Hi, I'm Brandon O'Brien from Redeemer City to City. In this series, Church and Outbreak, we're talking with staff and ministry partners around the country as we try to figure out together how to respond wisely and faithfully to the global COVID-19 pandemic. Beginning March 15th, many churches around the country and around the world were prohibited from gathering for weekend services. So church leaders scrambled to get their services online. Now more and more cities have shut down all but essential services. People everywhere are practicing social distance and the implications for ministry are huge. What should churches keep doing? What should they stop doing? What should they start doing that they've never done before? How many of these changes are for right now and how many should be permanent? Thanks for listening. In this episode, I'm talking with Andrew Kete, who is CEO of City to City Australia and Senior Minister of Christ Church Inner West in Sydney. Thank you for being with me today, Andrew. It's a pleasure to talk to you. Yeah, it's great to talk to you as well. We are all experiencing this global coronavirus pandemic, which is a really unique thing for most of the world to be having a very similar experience at roughly the same time. Mm. Sort of different in... Um, severity or intensity, also varying in timelines. So I'm wondering if you could give us a sense of kind of where things are for Australia in general or for Sydney, where you are right now. Yeah, so um, first of April today, April Fool's Day, uh, <laughs> interestingly <laughs> enough. Um, and Australia, I think, is kind of getting into the middle phase of all of this. Uh, we saw a fairly rapid increase, uh, you know, doubling every three days for a little while of confirmed cases. I think there's around four or 5,000 cases now uh, in various places. Pretty severe measures have been put in place. Um, so uh, the rule is now you're not allowed to leave your house unless you fall into certain specific categories or reasons. Um, at the same time, one of the really interesting things about Australia is an extremely low relative death rate. So I think the total number of fatalities so far is 17 or something like that, hmm. uh, which is way below, you know, two or three or four or sometimes 5% that we see um, uh, in, or more in other places. The average around the world is more than that. Uh, but Australia, it's less than what that, that's less than half a percent or something. So that's been an interesting feature of the Australian experience. Yeah. Well, and uh, it's interesting to me too, that this is uh, April 1st is actually uh, end of March where I am. So we're talking yeah, right. not only through space, but also <laughs> across yeah, time, time right now. Sure. Um, but it's, uh, it's the th here third month of the year. And uh, in Australia, there have already been several other national sort of catastrophes. So you started the yeah. year with fires and that was, give us a sense of where this falls in 2020 so far for Australia. Yeah, so um, the fires were uh, kind of an extreme version of a standard annual event, if I can put it like that. So every, every, every year over some, we have what we call the bushfire season. Um, and there's all sorts of theories as to why this season just happened to be so much worse than other seasons. The number of uh, acres burned was you know, in the millions and millions, far more than um, most other seasons. Um, I, I guess in some ways, if you have a low season for, for five years, then it's going to be, the next one's going to be a high season or something like that. But um, that, that uh, partly because there was um, such a large amount of fire, partly because communications are so much better that we get pictures of intense fires 
uh, doing crazy things as um, uh, thunderstorms can be a consequence of intense bushfires. They create their own little micro climate and you get a thunderstorm out of a, out of a, a bushfire. It's quite incredible. Uh, we haven't seen that before. Um, and uh, the fact that um, suburbia has expanded more and more into bush area means that it affects more people. And, but most of all, large smoke haze sat over major cities affecting millions of people for days on end. And so suddenly it became not just a thing you see on the TV, but something you, you smell on your clothes and you breathe in your nostrils. And so it became a, a, a very significant thing, um, particularly because it's over the holidays. And a lot of people go away on holidays in our summer uh, to the beach and the beach is often near bush area. And so we had, we had the Navy evacuating people from beaches. Mm. Uh, un, unheard of, really quite remarkable. Mm. Then immediately after the fires, um, we had some of the most intense rain uh, we've seen. Our, our dam levels in Sydney doubled in two days. Good, it great. was absolutely incredible. Um, and so we, had, we went from um, fires to floods, uh, pivoting in the space of maybe a, less than a week even. It was quite remarkable. And so it's been a really tough start to the year for, for Australians, uh, you know, right around the country. Wow. And so you're um, now experiencing what um, other parts of the world have maybe a couple, couple weeks to a month or uh, a few weeks ahead of um, Australia, the measures of social distancing and some other kinds of things. A lot of pastors in our networks and around the country have adjusted to uh, remote services, they're broadcasting online or, you know, they're leading small groups via Zoom and other sorts of things. And there's been a lot of conversation about the uh, change of format for how we meet during mm. this kind of crisis. But what I wanted to talk about with you today is um, not just the format of how we meet, but maybe the content of our preaching in, mm. a, in a, a period of crisis. Um, and one of the things that I know you've done work on is um, the idea of preaching to the heart. And so I want us to, to get to what that might look like, mean for us during a period of national crisis. But first is sort of a level set. Can you explain for us what it means and why you care about preaching to the heart? Yeah, right. Um, well, uh, I think heart is one of those words that we can use really easily without quite knowing what it is we're talking about. A bit like the word gospel. When you use a word so often that uh, it all just becomes assumed that everyone agrees and understand, understands and agrees with what it is they're saying when they use the word, but then it just sort of moves away from getting really kind of able to have a grip on it. And I think heart is one of those words. It's, it's incredibly common in the Bible. Uh, I think around 1,000 uses in the Old Testament and New Testament. Uh, some really um, core things are said about the heart in relation to human life and existence and behavior. Um, it's a wellspring of all of our actions. Jesus said it's out of the heart that come all the uh, evil things and evil desires that we do uh, and so on. So it's, it's really common. It's really centrally placed. But what it does is it takes us into um, what you might technically call theological anthropology. That is, what is a human being? And um, one of the things that I think has been uh, useful as I've tried to think about this is to figure out, well, all right, well, 
if the Bible has a central place for the heart, what is the heart, especially in relation to the other, uh, what I would call modes of human experience uh, that the Bible depicts? So if we're asking the question, what is a human being? How, how do we make decisions? How do, what motivates our behavior, et cetera? Then what is the goal of preaching to the heart in that sort of frame of understanding? Right. Well, uh, it seems to me that the basic framework for theological anthropology, what is a human being, uh, is really five, as I say, modes. Uh, there's the body, obviously, uh, the external part of, of a human, or, um, what is sometimes called the flesh, uh, you know, um, flesh and blood, that sort of thing. Uh, that's on the one hand. And then um, there are four other uh, more internal or spiritual aspects or modes of human experience, the mind, uh, the will, the guts, and the heart. The, the mind, uh, I think fairly clearly what uh, is in, meant by that. Uh, secondly, uh, the will, which is the choosing aspect of human existence. Uh, the, the guts, interestingly, which is the seat of the emotions. It's, it's the, uh, the place that experiences that emotional aspect of human um, life. Uh, we still have that in um, English idiom, uh, you know, having a gut feeling or being really churned up in my guts, something like that. Um, so it's a very interesting Greek word that's behind that, a sort of onomatopoeic word. Uh, and then finally, the heart. And um, one of the things I think that's most useful once you sort of lay out that uh, biblical anthropology is to say, uh, rather than try and figure out what is each of those things, to talk about what each of those uh, organs, if you like, does. So, so bodies move or act, hmm. minds think or believe, wills choose or, or decide, guts feel or emote hmm. and and then that leaves you thinking well what does what does the heart do um what is the particular operation of the heart hmm. and um as soon as you ask that question you go well that's uh, actually that takes you into another whole world in the bible of what i would call heart words hmm. words where the heart is not spoken about explicitly uh, it's not the, the word is not used but the operation of the heart is what's on view so that even if a word is not used, what's being talked about is the heart. And so what do hearts do? Hearts love primarily, hearts worship, hearts boast in, hearts rest in, um, hearts fear, uh, hearts long for, hearts desire, uh, and so on. And so actually, not only is it the thousand times the Bible uses the, the word heart, but every time it talks about fearing or desiring or loving or worshiping or resting in or boasting in or or any of those things, uh, it's, it's talking about the heart. And so it turns out the heart's even more central and significant. Hmm. Um, and where that all gets to is uh, this lovely phrase that uh, a scholar, Ashley Null, uses. He's a, a scholar who studies uh, Thomas Cranmer, the um, uh, great English reformer. Mm -hmm. uh, and he summarizes Cranmer's theology by saying, uh, uh, particularly Cranmer's anthropology, by saying what the heart desires the will chooses and the mind justifies. And that's a really interesting phrase to, to kind of capture um, just what's happening in every person all the time. I'd, I'd add a little bit more. I'd say what the heart desires, the will chooses, the mind justifies, the body does, and the guts feel good about. 
all of us, all the time, at every moment, in every aspect of our lives, in every conversation, in every decision, in every response, that's what's happening. And, and what that all gets to is, if you want to preach for people to actually grow more and more like Jesus Christ, then the only way that's ever going to be real is if you preach to their hearts, because that's the driving force in all of us. Right. I think that's a really interesting um, point that is being, uh, seeing more conversation about it, but we like to imagine ourselves as primarily rational beings who presented with all the data are going to come to pretty predictable good choices. Right. Um, and, and so there's a lot of preaching over time uh, through the history of the church that targets the intellect to say, if you just think right. the right things in the right order, you'll come to the right conclusions. Um, I think it's interesting too, in some conversations about spiritual formation, you often have an em emphasis on practices that if you engage mm. the body first, yeah. it changes these other things. Right. right. Um, and there has been more, I think of uh, James K Smith and others, the sort of emphasis on that, that we're not thinking beings first. We're not, doing beings first, we're desiring beings first. Is that, is that in line with what you're describing? Yeah, very much so. Um, I think that uh, it's really important to see that there's all sorts of feedback loops and interconnections between body, mind, will, guts, and heart. It's not like they're all separate compartments and they just sort of shove from one, you know, down out the corridor, down the next apartment and so on. There's <laughs> all sorts of feedback loops and connections and, and relationships and so on. I, I think that biblically, though, uh, we, we need to say, though there are, there are feedback loops, there might be what you might call dotted lines and solid lines, and the solid lines run from the heart to the other modes of experience, and the dotted lines run back from those other modes to the heart. Hmm. Um, so uh, James K. Smith, I think, is a fascinating an analysis of, of the, the problem of, you know, the, I think he calls it brains on sticks uh, <laughs> theology, which is just a really kind of a uh, uh, terrifying image really. <laughs> uh, um, the, the interesting thing I think uh, he, he, in my view, he judges, uh, you know, assesses the situation of, of, of preaching only to the mind as inadequate uh, mm -hmm. really well. I think really interestingly, his view that it's liturgies, that is enacted things. That's right. Essentially bodily actions that we do that form our hearts. I, I would say that he's put it, a, a, a black line, a, a, a hard line between body and heart. Uh, and whereas I, I, I wonder about that. Um, my daughters for a little while when they were in their mid-teens used to go to the mall, like he describes the, the liturgy of the mall, and, and they'd just go to look at the pictures and sort of drool over the you know, beautiful things there. And, and, and you can tell that as they were doing that, they were reinforcing some things in their heart. Mm. But interestingly, my son never went to the mall to do that. In fact, he would regard that as a kind of experience of living purgatory uh, <laughs> to be forced to go to a shopping mall. Uh, it, it didn't form his heart at all. Uh, he, he wanted to get down to the cricket pitch and play cricket. Um, in, in other words, the very liturgies that you choose are themselves already a product of what the desires of your heart are. That's where the, 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 the solid line is from heart to liturgy, not the other way around, I would suggest. Interesting. Great. So can you give us an example of maybe what it would look like to, again, under ordinary circumstances, um, preaching to the heart in dealing with a text and trying to, you know, help connect that to the, the desire system or desire mode of, of your congregation? Yeah, just one other piece of framework, just uh, to start with. 
Sure. Uh, Augustine um, had, a, I think, a really great analysis of love. Uh, and it, this continued right throughout the sort of medieval period and, and uh, into Jonathan Edwards, actually. Um, he said that love has uh, uh, a mode of uh, anticipating the future or experiencing the present of both good things and bad things. And so love as you anticipate a good thing is desire. Love as you experience that good thing in the present is joy. Hmm. Um, love as you anticipate a bad thing uh, is fear. And love as you experience a bad thing in the present is sadness. If, if something you don't love is taken away from you, you're not sad about it. If something you don't love is given to you, you're not particularly happy about it. Uh, so fear and sadness, desire and joy are actually modes of love in, in these two sort of forms. And I think that's a really great insight. Figuring out how to preach to people in terms of preaching to their heart, knowing what their fears and sadnesses are, knowing what their desires and joys are becomes just a really critical component of knowing who it is that you're preaching to. Hmm. Tim Keller has got a, a, a really fascinating talk that he gave uh, some years ago at a conference uh, called Unintentional Preaching Models. And I've, I've found enormous benefit uh, from that uh, talk um, where he just outlines various uh, preaching models uh, in a way I won't go into now, but um, he, he, he highlights two particular key, they're almost like tricks. They're, they're knacks or, or devices, actually, for how to preach to the heart. And um, the first one is to turn any application in a sermon into a heart issue by asking the question, why is it by the desires of our hearts that we find this thing difficult to do. So instead of just saying, for example, look, um, you, you need to be generous with your money and just describe what generosity is and maybe give some practical guidelines for it and suggest ways in which you can adjust your budget and all that kind of thing. Uh, uh, Tim says that, that um, it's very difficult for that to avoid merely speaking to the will or speaking to the mind. You understand the issue and then you call people to do what it is that they understand. And that I suspect is actually kind of pretty much what most sermons tend to be, actually. And Tim says, no, no, you've got to stop and do something slightly different, which is to say, why is it that we find generosity so difficult? Is it because we don't understand that we should be generous or what generosity would be? No, no, we know what it is. Is it because we, we, we just don't have the willpower to do it? Well, maybe, but what's going on deeper? Why, in terms of the heart, don't we find it easy to be generous? And so you see, what's so, I think, um, significant about that and insightful is it turns any application issue, any, any call to change, any growth in Christ-likeness that we're calling people to in preaching, it translates that from an issue to be understood or decided on into an issue that's actually about my heart. And then second, and this is really uh, equally important to the other side of the coin, it's how to preach the cross of Christ in that category. And so on that example of generosity, uh, you ask people, why is it that they uh, find it so difficult to be generous? Well, the answer's got to do with, uh, you know, feeling, feeling poor, um, uh, desiring to be wealthy, 
uh, desiring to be comfortable, these, these kind of heart questions. And uh, Tim points out that actually when the Apostle Paul tries to call people to generosity in uh, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, the way he does it is not just to say, look, don't you understand that other people need more than you? Or don't you understand that um, you've got lots uh, more than uh, some and so on? Uh, don't you recognise that you made a promise that you've now got to fulfil? That's all true. But where Paul goes is to say, he says, um, Jesus Christ, was, who was rich, became poor so that by his poverty, you've become rich. And, and suddenly, if, if people can grasp in their hearts that by Jesus' poverty, in particular on the cross, as he emptied himself of everything, uh, they have become rich. They have a wealth, uh, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms that can never be taken away from them. If they really actually in their hearts grasp the fact that they're rich, then that will release generosity in them and it'll be a change from their hearts. And the, the kind of, the really interesting thing for preachers, I think, on this is it's possible to get people to be more generous by appealing to their minds or beating on their wills. But if that's all you do, then the danger is that what's actually happening in their hearts is something other than the love of Christ filling their hearts. It may well be, I'll be, I'll be well thought of by my pastor if I increase my giving. Um, I will feel better about myself as a Christian if I increase my generosity to the poor. Uh, and so there's this change that's taken place externally. But what's actually happening in my heart is I've, I've heard a message, I've been told what I ought to do, and then this ugly thing can kick in. I want to feel better about myself. I want other, people's to think, uh, other people to think better about me. Um, I want to appear to be a better person. Um, I want to justify myself to myself. And so they do the external thing. But actually, what we've done is we've unintentionally, uh, we run the risk of unintentionally confirming their hearts in something other than Christ. Yeah. That's a, uh, that's a really helpful example. I think it, it strikes home as a great example, but also I think in the current conversation about the coronavirus and the sort of lasting effects of it, one of the things that we're talking about in the U.S. in particular is the lasting economic effects and impact of these kinds of things. And so I think um, generosity, uh, the, the uh, acquisitiveness, the f a feeling of poverty or actual poverty are especially relevant examples right now. Um, and I think it's a good segue to think about if fear, joy, sadness, all of those things are modes of love. Uh, and if those are the kinds of things you want to access wherever you're preaching in scripture, um, I wonder what kinds of extra considerations you might take when you're thinking about preaching in a crisis where probably all of those very normal human feelings are, yeah. Yeah. are heightened right now, right? There, right? there are a number of things we're fearing that we weren't fearing two weeks ago. There are a number of things that we've lost or missed or have been postponed that we're sad about and, you know, et cetera. So what changes, what doesn't change when you're thinking about preaching to the heart in the midst of a crisis? Yeah. And I think that's a, just, it's a really insightful question, actually. Um, uh, two thoughts that I've had uh, about it. One is I suspect that people's fears and uh, desires, they're the ways that they relate to the future, a loved future and people's sadnesses and joys are much more on the table than they used to be, much more open to view. That is that as the water drains and the, the water level goes down, we actually, people are, are much more 
exposed both to themselves and to others into what they actually were loving in the first place because they'll know what it was that, uh, was the love of their heart by what it is that they've come to fear and come to desire and the sadness that they feel and the joy that they feel. Uh, that's all much more on the surface. And for, for, for people for whom um, accessing what's really going on in their hearts is a confronting experience, then this is a pretty confronting time. Uh, that people will find themselves saying things and doing things or failing to say things and failing to do things that they, they never thought possible. Uh, the crisis brings all that up and out of them and into the surface. And so I, I wonder then if two things follow from that. One, it's more important than ever to speak to people's hearts, that is to speak to their loves, that is to speak to their fears and desires and their joys and sadnesses now more than ever. That's on the one hand. On the other hand, it's also really important to be super gentle about that, not, not brutal or, or crowing as a preacher or kind of, I, I, I told you so that, you know, you weren't loving God enough. Any of that kind of tone becomes really uh, toxic, I think. Um, uh, and so the, the gentleness of preaching seems to me to be a, a critical factor just at this time, at the same time as um, inviting people to use the opportunity that this crisis is providing of self-knowledge, uh, of a, a kind of a, a growing awareness of the heart, one of the images I use for the heart is of an iceberg, um, which, uh, which is just a way of saying uh, what Jeremiah said, where the heart is deceitful above all things. Um, we, it's so hidden from us. We're so, I think, normally unaware of what's really going on in our hearts, what our desires are, uh, what our loves are. We just, that, that just drives us and we just get on with, with life. But right now, that's, that, a lot more of the iceberg's visible. And the, the, I suspect the, the wise and loving pastor will be, be hearing a lot of that from their um, congregants uh, and, and learning and gently, both in pastoring and in preaching, trying to bring people um, to, a, to a deeper awareness of their love. And then not just leaving them there with, well, your heart's not quite as good as you thought it was, is it? You know, that's, that's, that's not going to help. But the, the crucial moment is in getting them to Christ, bringing the, the, the sacrificial, substitutionary, atoning death of Jesus, that Jesus, knowing all of that, all the whole iceberg, all along, actually stood in their place and constitutes that which will fulfill every desire, that which will defeat every fear, that which will bring every joy, that which will overcome every sadness. That's, that's who Jesus is. That's what Jesus has done. And the task in preaching is being able to bring those two things into connection with each other. The, the, the Jesus in, in all of that reality to the exposed, raw nerves of people's hearts as they are right now. That's really helpful. And it, 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 the, uh, the image of the iceberg or the sort of draining, <laughs> the lowering water table, right? Exposing things, I think, is, yeah. is a powerful image in part because I think that's the that image is what makes something like repentance tolerable at a time like this, right? That um, it feels cruel to call people to repentance uh, if what you mean by that is kind of groveling and self-pity about how bad I am. Yeah, right. But if it's the sort of awareness that, as you said, that like Jesus was aware of the whole iceberg 
before you were. So repentance is really just you seeing and becoming aware of what Jesus knew all along, <laughs> right? About you. Right. Um, and uh, yeah. And, and, and then actually, I mean, it, repentance uh, on this anthropology really becomes a, a repenting of and by and from the heart, meaning that you, you shift your love from, or, or the, or the primary love from whatever it might have been, security. Uh, you know, people have seen their, uh, what we in Australia call superannuation, you know, the sort of retirement savings. Tank, I mean, massively tank, 25, 30, 40% in, in a space of, a, you know, uh, two weeks. Uh, and how sad you feel about that tells you something about how much you loved it and how much you were, you know, banking on it and how secure you felt because of it. Um, but repentance means taking that, not just recognizing that, but then taking that and putting it on Jesus to say, um, nothing has changed about my eternal security. Nothing has changed about my, the, the riches I have in glory. Nothing has changed about my inheritance uh, from the father. Um, actually, I don't, I'm not, I'm not sad about any of it. I mean, you know, my, my retirement savings are down, you know, so I, I, you know, we'll figure that out when we get to it. Um, but, but, uh, another way to put that is to say, um, I, I, I think one way you can characterize what it is to be a, a godly person, again, this comes from Augustine, is that you love little things a little amount and you love medium things a medium amount and you love big things a big amount because you love Jesus most of all because he loved you infinitely on the cross. And, and you kind of, it's not that you're, you're, not, you're meant to not feel sad about retirement savings or health or sickness or the death of a loved one or anything. I'm, of course, you're meant to have multiple loves actually in the Bible. You're meant to love your enemy. You're meant to love your spouse. You're meant to love your kids. Uh, you're meant to love your neighbor. You're, you're meant to love all of the, it's quite legitimate to take joy in all sorts of good things. It's just, it's when we have disordered loves, we love small things a large amount. We love large things a small amount and we don't love Jesus most of all, that's when it all gets mucked up and that's when we, 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 we mess things up in the world. And this, I think, is a real opportunity as a pastor and, and preacher to help clarify for people how it is that Jesus' love for them, infinite love for us, evokes our love for him in such a way that it can order all of our other loves so that we're, we're, we're not disordered people. We... We, we grieve like other people do, but we don't grieve without hope, for example. So it's not that we pretend, but, but we know that um, in the love of God, uh, in, the, in the case of 1 Thessalonians, where, you know, where that quote comes from, um, we're eternally secure in him. And so death is, is a tragedy and a sadness and a, an, an enemy, but that has been overcome in Christ and will eventually be thrown into the lake of fire and, and, and so on. We've talked about this moment as an opportunity for people in your congregation. You know, the, the water level goes down, their fears, loves, joys, sadnesses are exposed, more available to them uh, than they typically are. Um, and the pastor's job in preaching then is to, to help guide, you know, point those things out and connect them to the, uh, the work of Christ. What about the pastor who's also seeing more of the iceberg for himself, yeah. right, or herself, than than is usually yeah. visible, 
And now on Sunday, you've got to, you know, bring gospel comfort where you're, you're now suddenly more aware of your disordered loves or misplaced hopes and, you know, et cetera. So what, what would you say to that pastor listening who's thinking, that's, that's great, but I'm the one that, <laughs> that needs the ministry yeah. here? Yeah, I, that, I think that's a great question. And um, one of the ways that we've sometimes talked about this in a city-to-city context is to talk about the pastor as the chief repenter of the congregation. Um, and I, I find that a beautiful image that uh, my role as a pastor is not to be the, the shiniest, happiest Christian in, in our congregation. It's not certainly to be the most gifted or intelligent or any, you know, because you're not the most gifted almost certainly and you're almost certainly not the most intelligent. Uh, uh, and, and you may well not be the most godly in any sort of outward form at least either. I mean, it, it, that's not what, what our role, I think, is to be, is the chief repenter. Uh, and what I mean by that is that um, to, to live your life out in front of a congregation, both in, in, in pastoring and relationships, as well as in preaching, uh, uh, to, to model what it is to repent from the heart and to be able to, uh, in, in a, you know, appropriately, according to whatever the, the text and the topic of the, of the day is, to be able to talk about how this text interacting with this moment has brought me to a point of uh, deeper spiritual awareness of the disordered nature of my loves and how it is that I've gone through the process of um, grasping Christ more deeply in my heart in that moment, in that regard, in that aspect. Uh, uh, and to be able to share something of that, I think, um, you know, that could be a really beautiful and really powerful experience for, for people to see their pastor as their chief, as the chief repenter uh, in the congregation, modeling what it is to, to live the Christian life like that. Yeah, I think that's a great, that's a great word. And it's a challenging word because it is not, uh, as, as you mentioned before, with uh, the unintended preaching models, the sort of knack or trick of, of uh, you know, turning the question from the will to the heart. Uh, there's no mm. real trick mm. in the vulnerability of being chief repenter, right? You just, right. yeah. That's great. Uh, well, um, I always like to ask at the end, if there's, there's anything we didn't talk about or anything I didn't ask that you want to be sure you say before we sign off. Um, I, I think only just to say I've, I've been trying to learn and grow in preaching to the heart for maybe five to seven years now. And I feel like I might just have gotten a bit of a handle on it on, in the last little while. Um, uh, I don't think it's a thing that our culture is particularly uh, adept at. We're, we're very much will and mind people in our culture, uh, in particularly a, a sort of a Protestant or evangelical culture. Uh, therefore, don't um, expect for this to be the kind of thing that you go right. I'm going to get preaching to the heart now, and and uh, and three weeks later, I'll I'll be you know writing the book on it or something like that. It's just um, <laughs> it is a it is a tough it's a tough transition or a tough uh, uh, development of one's pastoral and preaching ministry to 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 work on both for oneself and then and then. How you how you preach to the heart. So it's a it's a it's a great journey. Excellent. This has been really helpful. I th- I think that this is um, is conceptually the framework is helpful, but also um, 
there's a, a very concrete direction that I think people can take from this conversation. So I really appreciate your time. Now, great to be together. <laughs>